Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Talking Tradesman. Today, all the way from Spain, I have Susie Bennett with me today. Uh, so first of all, thank you very much, Susie, for creating the time to come on the podcast. Um, the reason that I've got Susie on the podcast today is Susie has just recently completed her PhD in male suicide research. Now, given the topic that we're going to be discussing, I'm just going to put a quick trigger warning in here for anyone that's listening. Obviously, given the nature of what Susie's done and her research, we are going to be talking about suicide and suicidal thoughts throughout the episode. So it's just a little trigger warning there. So, Susie, let's talk. Let's talk, Russ. Thanks for <laughs> How having me. How are you, me. first of all? How's Spain? <laughs> good. It's good. I mean, it's interesting. I'm partly here for mental health reasons because I do struggle with seasonal affective disorder. So for me, the winters are really, really hard. And I know yeah. it sounds, I always find it kind of like, I can't believe how hard, how much it affects me, but it really does. So... I'm here doing a dog sit um, yeah. in Barcelona and tr trying to lift the, the baseline of my mood with some sunshine. Well, I would imagine you're certainly having better weather than we are at the moment. For anyone who's yeah. listening right now, this is being recorded in the depths of January. So currently in the UK, we have sub-zero temperatures. So I'm sure Susie's doing a little bit better than us on that. Um, right, to get things started, Susie, uh, if you don't mind telling me a little bit about your background um, and the reason that you got into your research, and then we'll discuss the research. Okay. Um, so my background, I mean, I uh, had another career before this, basically, in, in the charity sector. I was working in fundraising, communication jobs, and then um, in 2017, the world was kind of going, turning on its head, basically. I remember there was Brexit, there was Trump, there was the refugee crisis. It just felt like everybody was very polarised. And mm. I went back to um, university to study social psychology because I wanted to understand how people form their values and beliefs about things. And I thought, well, there must be a science behind that. Let me go and explore what that is. And then I fell in love with studying. I had, it was so beautiful to me, such a freeing and joyous experience. And then when it came to be doing my dissertation topic, I wanted to do something that really my kind of soul was behind. And, um, you know, for a long time, uh, people that I love had struggled with mental health issues, which um, involved. Uh, suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts so a big mm. part of my life was consumed with um, thinking about that yeah and also around this time sorry Russ no no I was just um, said yes that's it okay <laughs> um also around this time was the um the me too movement was kind of happening and there was this sort of explosion of this conversation around uh, male privilege and the power that men hold and um, I remember at the same time uh, my flatmate that I was living with at the time was writing a play about male suicide and we talked a lot about it both from his research and experience and about my um, experience with loved ones as well 
And this statistic of um, suicide being the biggest killer of men under 50, which we, I sort of was holding on one side and then this other conversation about the privilege and power of men on the, on the other, and something just didn't seem to, there seemed to be a huge gulf between those mm-hmm. two realities. And, um, and that was it, basically. Something just clicked in my brain and I was like, that's what I need to explore. That's what I need to understand. And then I did, um, my master's dissertation was 32 interviews with men who'd attempted suicide or had thoughts and feelings of suicide and people bereaved by male suicide. And Russell's conversations changed my life. Wow. I met so many just remarkable people with stories that were really shattering and um, searing and insightful. And it was such a shock for me, Russ, and it's continued to be a shock the more that I've done this work, of the realisation of how much I've lived my life alongside men and not yeah. really understood what their lives were like. And basically after that, after the dissertation, I was like, I have to keep going. Like it, it was like suddenly dialing in to a radio frequency that I'd not heard before. And once I started hearing it, I heard it everywhere. And so then that led on to the PhD. So for the last four years, that's what I've been looking at, trying to understand what are the factors that put men at risk and what more can be done collectively as a society, as communities, as um, loved ones, as partners, as friends, as siblings. Um, to support one another in crisis. And, um... Yeah, I think first of all, Susie, what I'd like to say is, first of all, thank you for picking a subject like that to look into because you do have a unique insight in the fact that you are female. Um, mm. So you've got a different perspective on things and you can look from the outside in. But the whole purpose of this podcast is to try and raise awareness. Um, for the mental health situation amongst men and particularly from my perspective in the building trades which as i've discussed with you off like pre-record is the most effective demographic when it comes to men um Mm. so yeah like i say first of all thank you thank you for picking the subject and, and doing what you can to raise awareness um on this subject so there was if you don't mind, because I found this statement really powerful and, and moving, um, was actually what you published on Instagram, um, mm. on your personal reflections. And mm. if I can, if you don't mm. mind, I'm just going to read the first page of that. Mm. So what you wrote was that researching suicide in men as a woman has changed me deeply, changed the way I see the world changed the way I think and see and interact with men. It's brought me closer to men than ever before. It's made me realise how little I knew of their lives, how little I understood what the world was like for me, sorry, for my brothers by blood and by choice to inhabit and navigate. And I found that really powerful to read. Um, Just, I think, as a man, um, to sort of accept the fact that we do see the world differently and that perhaps there's I think people take it for granted that there is a common understanding when sometimes there's not does that make sense Mm. 
Mm. Um, I mean, moving on from there, can you tell me a little bit about the research that you did for your PhD? Yeah. I mean, just to comment on that just briefly, that is, I mean, every word of that is so woven into the fibre of my being and my experience of doing the PhD. And I think that one of the big things to understand, I think it's not that male suicide is a problem over there. It's a problem in which we all participate in some way. It's not something about how men are socialized to be men in isolation of how I as a woman interact with men. So a big part of my learning in the in the work was also thinking and reflecting of how all these ideas and expectations of male behavior also impact the thinking of, of women. They impact mm. how we relate to men, the space that we allow men to occupy in our lives and the space that we don't and how we think about men and our empathy towards men. We're all um impacted by it and so we all have an active role to play in thinking about the possibilities that we're allowing uh you know for the men in our lives so um and it was really rust it's been because my life has been so blessed with beautiful men i've been really really fortunate that i've had exceptional brothers i've had exceptional friends and I don't know who I would be without those people. And I think it was difficult for me to realise that that I could love them so deeply and not know them as fully as I would have wanted of somebody that I loved that deeply, if that made sense. So yeah, absolutely. Um, on a personal level, it's been very, um, very profound. Um, but to, so your question, sorry that I went on a segue, about what, what's my PhD involved? Yeah, so um, the research that you did, if you could just explain a little bit about what that research was. Yeah. So I know you mentioned that you took a, a group of 30-something men, was it? Yeah, so that was, for my, that was for my master's thesis. And then when okay. for the actual PhD, I mean, what's been strange for us about suicide research so suicide research is a kind of scientific discipline it's been going for about over 50 years mm. and even though pretty much consistently male suicide rates have been higher than women yeah given that you would think there would be an abundance of research well the obvious thing to try and understand is why are men at such risk you would think therefore that you would there would be a, a wealth of kind of research already done on that mm. topic but it's often I describe I describe it as kind of the elephant in the room of suicide research. Like it just seems yeah. to be um, everybody knows it's there, but kind of not acknowledging it often. I, th I um, find it astounding personally because I, yeah. I had this conversation earlier today, actually, when I was talking about this upcoming conversation, and what I said was that suicide is the biggest killer of men under fifty. Um, and yet, to me, there isn't really any initiatives being taken at a government level to address that. However, I believe that if it was anything else, so if, say, for example, cycling was the biggest killer of men under 50, I firmly believe that there would be things being done, there would be action being taken, there would be regulations coming in. Um, it just seems strange that it's everybody knows it's there, like you said, but it's that elephant in the mm. room. And 
it's still almost a taboo subject you know i mean mm. i'm immersing myself in this this world to raise awareness now and yet i still feel awkward talking about suicide it's almost like that taboo word right. um yeah did you find doing your research was it how did you find talking about it with people with, uh, how did men react to the conversations unbelievable do you mean the like participants uh that, yeah the participants just... participants and also just people around you generally um, yeah. that you would talk to about the subject okay um one thing to flag just before we move on is i just want to say that the stat about men under 50 being the biggest killer is very important, but also men 50 plus older men are also mm. a very high risk group of people as well. So it's not that when men pass 50, they're suddenly not, not at risk anymore as well. So I just wanted to, uh, to acknowledge that as well. Um, no, that's a very valid point. I think it's just above 50. Obviously, other things come into play, don't come they? Into play. With, yes, unfortunately, exactly. like your cancers and things like that. But I would imagine possibly, I mean, you probably know this better than me, but does the suicide rate actually fluctuate at all over 50 or is it just because other comorbidities come in? I think it's the fact that other things come in and then, but they still remain, you know, a high risk group for um mm. suicide um yeah talking about so it's really uh complicated russ i think that in terms of my participants the 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 men that i speak to are unbelievably articulate about it like mm. unbelievably and they say things that echo in my bones it's so uh sort of moving and profound um socially i think it's more complicated and i think one of the tricky things on a personal level for me with the work is it's quite isolating because when you go mm. to the pub on a friday night and people want to ask you you know small talk of like how's your week been what do you do it's um you know you're introducing a topic that's very um you know, emotive for, for some people or think something that they don't necessarily want to think about on a, you know, in um, social time. And I think, of course, it's very, it's frightening for people. It's, yeah. you know, it's a very, very frightening thing. And I think then that that can add to the isolation of people who feel suicidal as well, because often what I find with people who are suicidal is that they, what they're really craving is space to really talk about what they're feeling. They want to really talk about what it means inside of me to feel like I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. And it's very hard to find people that can sit in that space and hear that, which is understandable. And I think it's even more harder if you're someone that loves that person very deeply to be mm. able to sit and hold that conversation and not be completely terrified about what it could mean um is very hard and that's why things like the samaritans of course is so so important because it provides that non-judgmental space where yeah. people can really just you know say to another human being about what it feels like to really be feeling like your pain is so much you don't want to be here anymore um and so i sometimes i struggle with sort of mental health campaigns about you know talking more of course 
talking about what you're feeling is really important. You have to talk to somebody who's safe, who's able mm. to hold kind of what you're saying. And we also have to have a conversation about upskilling people to be able to listen and hear and hold those very difficult conversations. You know, it's not um, something that everybody necessarily has the toolkit currently um you know to do and so it's always difficult with this with this topic with this area to sort of have simplistic answers to things because there's a yeah. whole context and nuance that's um you know that makes things very variable and much more complicated than sort of a simple soundbite about um do this or do that yeah absolutely I, I think what you've said there is incredibly interesting um the fact that what you've said is that actually people who are in that position want to talk, but they don't feel that there's somebody there that's willing to listen. Um, and I think you're dead right there because it's it's a terrifying thought, isn't it? If a loved one or a family member actually feels to the point that they want to step out. Um, and I don't think anybody wants to hear that, do they, from their family? But the reality yeah. is that people find themselves in that situation and it may be quite right that more people do need to be equipped to handle that conversation. Um, and that is where the likes of Samaritans or third party charities are fantastic because they are impartial and they do provide that, that space to listen to people that mm. might feel that they can't talk to somebody that's very close to them. Um, but it's a really interesting point overall, I think, because, you know, being a lad myself and, and growing up, probably you know through pretty stereotypical lad culture at times um and thinking of the times when i've gone out with friends and there's been groups of us you just you don't have those conversations um mm. not to that extent um mm. and if I, i'm trying to think and I'm, I'm thinking of my own circle of friends and thinking really if i was in that position would i uh, would I have that conversation? And the answer is probably no, because when I have had hard times, I didn't talk about it. Um, mm. Did I want to talk about it? I'm not sure. I, I don't know whether that to me at that point would have been an admittal um, that I was struggling. But I guess if you're at the point where you're actively considering taking your own life, you've probably pretty much admitted that you're struggling. Mm. Um during your research, were you actually actively talking to people that were currently suicidal? Mm. Yeah. And Russ, just one thing to say about that as well. As, as you were talking, I was thinking, the other thing that's strange about me, the stigma we have around talking about suicide and expressing I have thoughts of suicide is also... Um, it's also, I think, important to flag. For me suicide thoughts have to be taken seriously if you're having thoughts mm. of suicide you have to take that seriously but it's also for me such a normal thing to to think about at times like this this notion that at times life would be so difficult and painful that you might question your ability to keep going for me is such a normal thing like mm. I think that we we're sent off in this direction of thinking it's massively taboo and in a way it's creating a taboo around sort of saying I breathe oxygen like it's just you know a part of um the human experience that's for me seems like a very possible thing that people in their lives may come 
may have moments when they feel that way. So I think it's also important for me around normalising, but without then diminishing the fact that you have to take it seriously that you're feeling that way because it can escalate and lead you in a direction that you may not necessarily want to go in. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? That Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's really, I find the whole thing really interesting. I've really been looking forward to the conversation because obviously you've had all this insight um, and from a very different perspective to anyone that I've spoken to before. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, amongst your research, I mean, did you find that there were any common factors that would contribute to people getting to that stage? Were there any common denominators when you spoke to people, like trigger points or? Mm. Yes, I would say that there were. And I would say um, it's, it's challenging to talk about Russ in a way because everybody's story is so unique. Mm. Um, and so everybody's cocktail of pain is unique to them. So within your cocktail, there may be specific experiences from childhood, from uh, relationships, financial problems. Um, in someone else's cocktail, it's going to be different components. So it's very difficult to say across everybody's cocktail, these are the, these are the ingredients. Yeah. Um, but what, I, what we do find is that, and I explain it as kind of, psychological tectonic plates so if you imagine around the around the earth the tectonic plates that kind of hold the earth together mm. and for me kind of the core psychological tectonic plates when we think about suicide are about your emotions your thoughts and feelings about yourself and your relationships with other people and when too much dysregulation builds underneath those core tectonic plates, then you get to a point where there's going to potentially be an earthquake. But the things that cause that dysregulation can be different. So for one person, it may be that they were bullied as a child and they struggle, um, you know, so that bullying makes them feel crap about themselves and gives them low self-esteem. They may struggle then to um, have meaningful relationships with people because they don't think that they're you know worth anything they may hold all of that emotion inside and so the dysregulation is building underneath their um, tectonic plates for somebody else they may be incredibly popular at school but um, maybe their caregiver um, you know, had an addiction challenge and that meant that there was some emotional neglect at home which affected their emotional regulation and affected their self-esteem. So do you see what I mean? Like different, mm. there's, there's a million different stories of how people's pain can build, but it seems to be that that pain can manifest in dysregulation in those, within those three core um tectonic plates and so we did a big review of 20 years of um, research qualitative research which means interviews primarily with um, yeah. men who are suicidal and people bereaved by male suicide and we synthesized the findings from those papers it was 78 papers and those were the core factors that we saw those were the sort of core three uh, psychological domains where we saw challenges building and 
what we kind of hypothesize is that that is potentially the same in a suicidal crisis in a woman, that there's dysregulation in their emotions, dysregulation in their thoughts and feelings of self, and dysregulation in their relationships with others. But what our evidence seems to suggest is that cultural norms, cultural expectations for how men should behave, potentially elevates men's baseline risk because men inherit um, ideas from societies and cultures that may um, increase their risk for dysregulation in those areas. If we think, for example, of emotions, how men are socialized to have a relationship with their emotions, to keep things inside, to which first of all, impacts your ability to, to know your emotions for yourself. Before we even get on to expressing them, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if, if I'm absorbing high emotional suppression, it then has an impact on my ability to be able to identify and name my own feelings and then layer into that then the emotional suppression of sort of sharing those feelings. So from a cultural point of view, we start to see men's risk in relationship to their emotions increasing. Then in terms okay. of selfhood, we see um, men talk about having very clear ideas around male success and male failure, yeah, and therefore really potentially struggling much more when there's a perceived failure in their lives, being able to cope with that, and instead internalizing that as something really condemning of them as individual men. And that sense of failure we saw in relation to jobs, employment, in relation to relationship breakdowns, if your partner leaves you, that's, you know, or you're, there's a family breakup, somehow that means you know, that you failed then in your role as um, you know, provider. Um, we saw it around if you being diagnosed with a mental health issue, that again, there was a sense of failure around um, living up to those expectations of what men should be. And then lastly, in terms of relationships, these cultural norms for men to be um, independent, to keep their emotions to themselves, to stay in control, all of those things have an impact on some men's ability to build intimate relationships with other people. If I'm being told, keep your emotions to yourself, it's very difficult in some ways to then build intimacy with other people because it's difficult for them to know you if you're withholding your, um, you know, emotions. So in lots of different ways, we saw kind of ideas and expectations for male behavior impacting men's ability to um, regulate these kind of core psychological areas. Now, of course, Russ, I'm talking about specific group of people, you know, Mm. in terms of men who are suicidal. and. What's what I'm saying is not true for for all men, and a lot of it as well is it is a social expectation. So, for example, some of the most emotionally articulate and eloquent and intelligent people that I've met are men who are suicidal. They're the people that I've had the most emotionally rich and informative conversations with. So often it's around if you give men the space to actually share and talk, um, there's amazing like uh, power and insight and poetry there. Um, I'm, I'm saying a lot, so. No, 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 I'll, 
Yeah. Honestly, Susie, I'm finding it fascinating. So that's some I'm, I'm giving you this space to do this okay. <laughs> uh, because you're you're offering insight that I'm losing myself in anyway. So no, it's um it's really interesting. So please carry on. Um yeah, so those were the those were the main points basically that we and so also Russ, the important thing to remember as well from our findings is that these three sort of tectonic plates work in interaction. So how you feel mm. about yourself impacts your emotions and it impacts your relationships with other people. So that's why I think the tectonic plate thing helps for me because it's thinking about these things all in motion with one another. Um, and we essentially sort of saw from this study that kind of the interaction of harms in those three areas potentially elevated uh, men's suicidal risk. Now, what I should say, mm. Russ, is what we were looking at were cultural factors. Yeah. What we didn't look at or address, and it's not my area of expertise, is what might be biological factors, that biological differences between men and women that may elevate men's um, suicide risk. So I don't know, for example, in t let's take something like self-reliance in men is a potential risk factor for men. Men who are more self-reliant and therefore kind of emotionally isolated might be more at risk. Now, are those men self-reliant because of there's some biological drive underneath that? Or is it, also, is it about how that they're socialized, that, that cultural expectation for men to be so? Potentially, it's a mix of the two. But I don't want to say that biology has no part in this. It may well yeah. do, but that's not my, um, you know, area of expertise think, or of research. Yeah, I mean, the thing that you say about societal society and societal values interests me, Susie, because um, the part of social science that I studied during part of my degree did touch on the suicide rates between, say, Eastern civilization and Western civilization. And the fact yeah. that it's much higher in the West. So the developed world that we live in um, and the societal values that we carry in terms of, like you said, you know, what equates to success and failure are very different to what they are in more impoverished areas of the world or Eastern mm. society. Um, they carry different values and the mm. suicide rates, say, in Eastern society or predominantly Buddhist cultures are far, far lower. Um, mm. And to me, that would also point towards there being something wrong with the foundations of our society in terms of the, the values and pressures that, that would lean oh towards God. more of a societal thing than a biological thing. Mm. It, Russ, it's one of those things. This was, a, this was, I first kind of dialed into this idea during my master's dissertation. And th this is what I would say to any women listening as well, like, I did, I had a conversation with a man during my master's thesis and he and he said to me as a man you know so clearly whether you're in the success camp or the failure camp and he said that this idea of uh, this this fear of failure was so um so kind of vibrant in in his life so present I mean in his life and um and he was saying that he was saying sort of as women there's we're almost taught to fail was his perspective like there's an expectation as women that you know going back you know um from a, a few 
um, decades ago, certainly when I was being raised, there wasn't an expectation for women to be successful. Therefore, when you failed, you know, that was, um, you know, not necessarily as distressing as men who, he yeah. was like, I was never taught to fail. I was told that I was going to be successful. And therefore, when failure did happen, you don't have any tools to kind of incorporate it into your life. Now, it's not nice for either gender in that scenario. There's no kind of winners. But for me as a woman, uh-huh. understanding that was so powerful. And then that is a finding that's gone on to kind of echo through lots of other things that I've seen. And I think really understanding how to support men when they may be experiencing a perceived failure is so has been really critical to me and I think then that's why the podcast that you're doing um like men's peers group peer group support groups the more conversations that men are having with each other because and I'm talking in a general way but because women potentially talk more about what's going on for them I for example know all the women in my life feel like a failure because we share that with each other all of the time. And so right. there's, when, I, when I experience failure, I don't think that's uniquely condemning of me as an individual. I understand that it's an experience that, you know, other women around me are, are having. And I think that one of the dangers about the kind of emotional isolation that, that men can be left in by our societies is that they can experience that failure as something uniquely condemning of them as an individual man so the more that we can have those conversations where we're normalizing that sense of failure um is really really um vital because it's so distressing when you when you reading testimonies or people are telling you their stories about how that sense of failure can drive them to thinking that they don't they shouldn't be able to exist anymore like wow. that is that's absolutely um... I mean just to pull it back a, a touch there Susie because one of the things that you were saying is um that you know that there's from a woman's perspective or if any women are listening to this to know that or know how to support a man if somebody around them because and that's the thing isn't it it's not a man and woman problem this is an us problem because yeah all the all the women out there have no doubt got men that they love whether that's friends or partners or fathers or sons or brothers whatever it might be i would imagine it's quite rare that that isn't the situation is there any advice or i know that's probably difficult but is there any advice Mm. that you would give to any of the women listening at the moment that might be in a position where they're in contact with somebody in their life who has gone through a perceived failure what would you say to somebody in that point um my advice would be i mean it is difficult with that context because everyone's situation is so unique but i think probably the the biggest advice i would maybe say is just to really listen and really I think what's been important to me is is undoing a lot of my own thinking and expectations of, of male behaviour. As I've said before, like I thought I knew men and I really didn't. And so you really have to start listening and learning men in the same way that women really need men to start listening and learning about women. Like yeah. we, the world is in a chaotic place. And the only way we're getting out of this, if we're getting out of this, is together. 
And the only yeah. way that we can build a, you know, a healthy, strong path forward is to really start listening to each other, not be projecting onto one another my understanding of what your experience might be. Because I have found when I've started listening to men and really learning from them and learning about their experiences, it's, you know, it's changed so many things for me. And I also think it's really important, Russ, in that we have to understand as well that men have been socialized in a different way. Yeah. And, and understand as well potentially what it means for a man I don't think it's necessarily easy for anybody to say, I'm struggling, I'm in a lot of pain, I'm overwhelmed, I don't know if I can cope. None of those things are necessarily easy for anybody to say. But I think no. when you factor in the additional layer of socialization that men have had, that you should be able to do all of those things. And if you can't do them, then you are somehow failing. Then there has to be kind of an additional layer of um, sensitivity around you know, allowing men to come into those conversations in the way that they're comfortable to have them. You know, they don't, male sharing doesn't necessarily look at like how female sharing is going to happen. And, uh, and so I think that it's also important within that to hold um, space for how people, different people are comfortable in articulating um, you know, what's going on for them. And I think also allowing people to have dignity within that, to have some sense of agency and control around their pain, which I don't know if that's making sense, what I'm trying to... Yeah, it is. And the one thing that I... So my, you're saying so many things that have got me thinking. Um, and the one thing that my head stuck on there when you were talking about, um, obviously, the thought processes is... I think as well as obviously, you know, women trying to understand men's thought processes and pressures more, I think also men need to actually inwardly reflect about all of those pressures and values that society mm. have put on them and actually have a look at what really matters um, and whether failure is this tragic thing or whether it's just a part of life because realistically i mean some of the best business people in the world fail a hundred times to get one success um and but and people only ever focus on the one success now mm. i mean i sat there then listening to what you were saying and thinking christ that's me yeah okay that bits me okay that bits me but it, mm. and I'm on a journey of sort of like educating myself and, and looking into psychology and the, the way that my brain works. But that's been a huge decision. Um, and it's a, I'm really glad I went down that path. But for the first 30 years of my life, I would say I was on autopilot, um, mm. behaving in typical manners and reacting to typical things. But I wasn't aware I was doing it. I was on autopilot. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I, I was. Yeah. I believed I was acting the way that I was designed to act. It's like, you know, a, a car drives down the road. That was me. I was a man doing my thing, driving down the road. Um, and typically I, I did what a lot of people do, which was I sought out marriage, kids and a house. And I was under the impression that that was my, you know, that was a package to happiness. That was everything that I should be aiming to achieve. 
um, for various reasons, that all got unpicked. And it was at that point that then I had to reevaluate my priorities, um, reevaluate my values and actually think, okay, mm. I mean, to, to gloss over, also I am glossing over quite a lot of that. So essentially I did that. So I built the, the family, the house, you know, the nice car, the, the, all of the, the things that the quintessential Englishman should, should aim to achieve, you know. And then through the situation that I found myself in, which was divorce, that all got took away. So then I was the single father, you know, going through court battles to see my kids, had to sell my house. So I went from having everything in theory that society tells me that I need to be a success to then having none of it. Now, interestingly for me, I came to a point where I actually found a a strange freedom in it. I found a a freedom in the fact that I didn't have these commitments anymore that really were pressures and and weights around my neck. But fortunately, I found that perspective. Um, Mm. I know a lot of people don't. And a lot of people that I spoke to at that point in my life sort of looked to me like, oh my God, you know, I'd, I'd have lost it if that had have happened to me because you've lost everything. And outwardly, I guess the response I was actually having from other men in my circle, my friends, was to look at me and think he's lost everything. Mm. So had I have been of the same opinion, that could very easily mm. have spiraled. And I, I believe a lot of people mm. do find themselves in that position. So mm. I think there is still a proportion of responsibility on us men to self-examine and you know look into what we're expected to do and what society tells us we have to do and even our friend circle and family circle because that that plays a big part as well i know a lot of people feel those pressures through family um and the expectations of family because you know you're a representative in a lot of cases of your parents and yeah. your successes dictate whether they're successful parents. And then there's that pressure. Um, and as I say, I think overall, if we were to really evaluate, and it, it comes down, I mean, we could go down a huge rabbit hole here because I believe that it, this needs to start at an education level. It needs to start with the kids. It needs to start with the generation that are in schools. And I also believe psychology should be a core subject in the same way that English and maths is because to me, there's nothing more important than learning about your mind because yeah. without that, you have nothing. Um, yeah. But again, I, I can't see that happening anytime soon. But to anyone that's listening to this at this point in time and, and thinking that they resonate with anything that we've been discussing, that's what I would say is evaluate your values and what really matters to you rather than what you perceive matters to people outside that are looking in at you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, there's a great, there's a great quote that I can't remember who it's from, but it's something a lot by like, um, it's something about like, what is the measure of wellness to be well adjusted to a sick society? Um, mm, yeah. but the idea being that like, I mean, uh, you know, of course there's things that's wonderful about our society but there's a lot that's deeply unwell i think we're deeply dislodged from a core sense of value a core sense of purpose i think i think service is really important 
being in service to one another. I yeah. think we live in a cult of selfhood that's so yeah. corrosive and toxic and damaging and making us deeply, deeply unwell. Like this is me speaking personally now, not from, um, you know, necessarily a, a research point of view, but yeah, really understanding. Um, for me, that's a great, one of the best things for my mental health is being, the, the two best things, if I was to really like paraphrase them, was to like get an understanding of myself because I also grew up, you know, in an environment of quite high emotional suppression. I really, mm-hmm. until I went into therapy when I was like around 30, I really couldn't articulate what, what I felt. And I remember saying to my therapist, I feel like I'm using the muscles in my throat for the first time in my life. I was like 30 years old because like, I feel like I'm talking for the first time in my life. Wow. Um, so for me, getting an understanding of myself so that I could have better in conversations internally about what I was feeling and what was going on for me and then making better decisions about what I wanted to share with people, what I was going to figure out for myself. And then once I had a better sense of myself for us, getting out of my brain as much as I could. And by that, I mean being of of support and service for other people. Because for me, that's the thing that, you know, it's in some ways it's a selfish thing because it makes me feel better. Like it, the, um, but those, you know, and I think we've, we've, we don't have that, those that anchored in our um, society anymore. Um, We don't. It's you're hitting the nail on the head. I think Susie, because we are kind of driven or our metric of success is very solo. Um, You know, how can I put it? If, if you were to, go and get a job and work all the hours under the sun and buy a one million pound house and a nice car that would be deemed by 99 percent of society as a success as a success if you were to spend the same amount of time helping other people but in the meantime live a quaint life you know two up two down and and ride a bike you would be seen as a less successful person mm. yet you might be helping 100 others in that time frame um helping others just doesn't seem to carry any value to society i mean i say that obviously you know it makes you feel good people feel good and like oh he's a nice bloke he does that but i don't think people would judge a person based on the help that they provide to others not in terms of success or failure um interestingly one of the buddhist philosophies that uh, i came across when i studied buddhism was that happiness is found in service to others so mm. again that eastern philosophy has mm. there's a lot of merit to I love that. that yeah i love that and there's a real movement russ of of that happening in relation to male suicide and this real emergence of like like i say the podcast that you're doing these community groups peer support groups i think there's talk club andy's club man down in cornwall there's yeah. all all these organizations that are that literally are built on that principle and i think there's something mm. so beautiful i remember again this was a conversation that i had with a participant in my master's thesis and i remember him saying to me there is such an unlocked power and resource in men to take care of one another if you think about sports teams or you know historically wars which were, yeah. you know, uh, you know, all men largely. 
the ability for men to be a unit, to be a pack, and to look out for one another is unbelievable. Yeah. And he was like, if we can start unlocking that, it's such a powerful resource um, for, for tackling part of this crisis. And I fucking love it when I see it in action. It makes yeah. me so, it just, it, it makes me high rust. It makes me so, it's so moving and powerful and beautiful. I think you, you've actually touched there on what I was going to lead on to. And actually, you've, you've probably half answered the question. But one of the things that I was going, that I ask everybody uh, that's coming on the podcast, because of what the, the core subject is, is what, what I would like to ask you as a guest is why do you think, what is, what is your theory on why the construction industry is mm. so adversely affected with male suicide? Because the statistics, I think the, the total is just under 50% of the 75% of people that take their own lives come out of the construction industry, which is huge, you know, compared to any other industry demographic. That's every other job in the UK. Nearly 50% of those deaths come from the construction industry. Why do you think that, that the construction industry is so severely affected in comparison? Do you know, is it specific trades within the construction? Are there... So it, you're far more likely to take your own life if you're in any construction job. However, there are two of the trades that are worse than any of the others, which are the finishing trades. So plasterers and painters and decorators okay. are the worst affected demographic. So from what I remember of the statistics that I saw, which are quite hard to come by, um, plasterers and painters and decorators are four times more likely to take their own life than the average male. So um, who obviously just by being male, you're three times more likely. So that's seven mm. times more likely than, I guess, than a woman to take their life. Um, yeah. So, yeah, those two trades are the worst affected. But have you got any theories as to why that would be? I mean, I haven't done any research into that. So I wouldn't be thinking I wouldn't be talking now from a re research perspective. But I would uh, certainly from my my friends that I know in those industries, they live with a high level of financial uncertainty in terms of their, you know, their work can fluctuate, not knowing a lot of anxiety and stress about income. And I think then if you factor in a sense of what we've been talking about, success and failure, uh, you know, perceived pressures to provide, to be the provider, it, what it happens when you don't feel like you can live up to those roles. I think that there can be a lot of isolation in those yeah. jobs that you don't really have. Um, it's not like you've got necessarily, depends, you know, I know that sometimes there's teams, but if you're working, you know, self-employed and you work for yourself, it's a lot of your day that's by yourself. Mm. There's a certain time, certain period where your body starts packing in. I know from people that I know that they're, you know, it, start, it takes a physical toll and then there's the anxiety of like, well, what what do I do if I can't do this anymore? Yeah. Um, I think again, often people I know in those industries um, spent a lot of their school years in an environment where they internalized a lot of negative thoughts about themselves because they weren't necessarily the school environment wasn't necessarily set up to allow their unique skills and talents to flourish. So instead, they internalized feelings about you know 
not being uh, good enough necessarily. Um, so I can imagine, uh, you know, a sort of orchestra of, of different factors could potential risk factors being a being at play there. Um, I think you know one of the things I'll pick up on then that you've said there about the you know the school situation. One of the problems in the UK that we face at the moment is that it's still seen or stigmatised that ending up in the building trades is almost like a failure before you've got started yeah. because it's seen as the thing you do if you don't do well in school. Now, yeah. my son, for example, so I've got a 16-year-old son, um, which is another reason that I, you know I'm doing this because he's potentially, he's training to be an electrician at the moment. So he's potentially also going into the building trades. And I've seen firsthand over the past year the way that that worked. So my son did well at school. He passed his exams, did well at his GCSEs. Um, but when we went to the college open day, it was an assumption that he would fail. Um, and in fact, he's only doing two and a half days a week at the moment at college, supposedly full time, because they allocate half of his timetable to resit in his exams. So when he turned up and he had passed his exams, they just went, oh, well, oh, wow. we'll, we'll pull those subjects out. Um, so there's this, and I spoke to his tutor about it, and I, I said, you know, why, why are you talking like he's going to fail? Like, surely I thought being an electrician that they'd want good maths grades, good good English. Um, and he said the majority of the people that come to the college into construction are the people that do badly at school. And again, I think there's a duty of care that needs to be expressed from our teachers in the UK to stop doing that to you know mm. years ago again I, I won't go off on one too much because obviously it's a, a subject quite personal to myself quite close to my heart but I had a conversation with my son where he came home from school one day and said that one of his teachers had said to him if you don't try harder at school and pay attention you'll end up in the building trades mm. so already like you said there's this sort of expectation and preconception that you know what actually if you end up in the trades you've already failed because if you'd done mm. well you would be going down an academic route um mm. i've got a lot of love for the trades i've spent 22 years in the building trades and quite recently i've I've seen the way there's so much potential there um i mean i did well at school myself university just wasn't for me at the time i didn't know what i wanted to do it's taken me mm over 30 years to decide that I've got a keen interest in psychology and then start doing a, a degree, you know, through open uni. Um, but I didn't go into the trades because I couldn't do anything else. I went into the trades because it resonated mm. with me at the time. But I, th I think there are, if you combine that, the other key thing that stands out to me and particularly with the trades that are worse affected being decorators and plasterers, they're finishing trades and they are more likely to work on their own um mm. you're less likely to work in teams and gangs and you haven't got the other people mm. on site because generally they've finished and left uh so <clears throat> if you're self-employed you're very likely to be on your own if you're on site you're likely to be one of the last people in everyone else has gone and i believe that isolation is huge you know yeah. i mean certainly from a personal perspective um i've had lads work for me for years now but at this current point in time I'm working on my own. I'm working solo. And my wife will say to me, I can always tell when you've worked on your own. 
Right. Because, I, because yeah. you're always more anxious. You know, I'm yeah. an overthinker anyway. But if you put yeah. me on a job on my own all day, I've got eight hours a day to just internalize my thoughts, overthink everything. And then I'll come yeah. home and I'm checking on everything. I'm, are we okay? Is this okay? Is that okay? And it's um, that being on your own thing, I think is hugely mm. powerful. I'm not sure what we can do to change it, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, that one resonates. Well, I mean, this podcast, this is why I was so in love with this podcast when you first approached me, because this is a way potentially for those people to not be alone during the day in terms mm. that they can have you now between their ears. And, um, you know, and thinking, I agree with what you're saying about the, edu- you know, starting with education, like what a difference it would make if the trades were celebrated at schools instead of a celebration of one specific way of which um people could be success as schools define it but that you know the mm. certainly for currently the world is always going to need construction electricity electricity these things are fundamental contributors to our ability to function as a society and if those things and going into those professions were celebrated legitimately within academic environments what it would do for people's self-esteem as they're coming through school, deciding where they want to go, um, could be really, um, you know, meaningful. It would be a good first step, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, it's just to change that initial preconception. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other factors. There's the pressure, the financial pressure. There's the there's no regulation when it comes to people who are self-employed. So there's nobody checking hours. There's nobody making sure that people aren't hitting burnout. Um, and quite often, interestingly, did you find, was there any correlation with people that took their own life and, and lack of sleep? Did sleep play a big part? Um, sleep didn't come up massively, but there is research around it. And I think that it is, um, you know, I think the thing is, the way that I describe it, Russ, is is that um, if if you imagine every one of us has a tank of pain inside of us that we're collecting across our lives, different experiences are pouring pain into our tank. And as our tanks get fuller and fuller and fuller, it starts impacting all our other kind of regulatory systems, including sleep. When I'm full of pain, it's very difficult to sleep. And then um, poor sleep will mean that I function worse during the day, which means that my pain tank then gets higher and higher. So it's in this kind of um, dangerous kind of loop with um, with one another. Um, and sleep is such a delicate thing, Russ, because it's like, how do you get good sleep when you're really stressed, when you're really you know when you're really struggling and you know that's something that's going to help but it's so hard to do when you're um you know not in a good place for some people for some people they you know it's the opposite and they're sleeping too much and it's you know it's um getting out of bed that's the um, the depression side isn't it yeah that's a challenge for them so um yeah, but I think that there's massive potential in the construction industry to start um, 
taking care of its of its own and you know and and mm. and setting the tone and the example for a normalizing behavior modeling the modeling um behaviors around things and um you know looking out for for one another that's why i think this podcast is so important because it's your um you've got the legitimacy to speak to um oh, i think i've lost you temporarily you know, so is it oh no you're back yeah it's all right i lost you for a moment then okay um, I was just saying that, you know, that one of the things that I think is so exciting about the, this podcast is that, you know, the, is creating that space to have that direct conversation, um, yeah. you know, with that, with that audience. Yeah, no, I hope so. That That's the reason that it was set up. And like you said, I mean, for me personally, that's what I do when I'm at work on my own. I'm listening to audio books. I'm listening to podcasts. Um and certainly having one that can resonate from somebody that's in your shoes, hopefully will find, you know, the right people will hear the message and potentially think about things a bit differently or, or have the courage to reach out and talk, um, let people know that they're struggling, that something they've heard might, you know, be the one. And this has been a very deep conversation on a, a very emotional subject. And I'm sure if there are people listening that are struggling, um, if you have been triggered at all by anything that you've heard today, just know that those organizations are out there. The likes of mm -hmm. Samaritans, the likes of the Lighthouse Club, uh, Mind. Samaritans and Lighthouse Club have 24-7 monitored numbers. So you can ring and speak to somebody. And quite often, as Susie mentioned earlier, speaking to somebody that's anonymous is quite often a relief um there was an analogy that i heard a while ago uh, that resonated with me and it was the the weight of emotions um and the more because what men are renowned for is bottling things up you know not talking bottle it up bottle it up and the small things can quite easily become too heavy a weight to bear and the way that the analogy that i heard was a pint of water so if somebody were to hand you a full pint of water and tell you to hold it with your arm stretched out, could you do it? Well, yeah, of course you could. Would it be heavy? No, not at all. Would it be heavy in an hour? Yeah. Mm. Could you hold it for four hours? I don't know. Mm. You know, I've not tried it. My arm would probably shake. But if you were to quantify that as an emotion, so something that initially seems small and insignificant, if you hold on to that, mm it quite easily becomes too heavy a weight to bear. And certainly mm. you couldn't hold your arm outstretched with a pint of water in it for a day. I don't think there's many people out there mm. that would achieve that. So the sort of lesson behind that is sometimes just putting that glass down and speaking to somebody is a good way of doing that is you're not going to cure the problem, but just offloading mm. that, just talking to somebody and telling them how you feel is often enough to just break that thought cycle break the pressure mm. to just you know rest that rest that emotional weight on somebody else for a short period of time mm. can often be enough to make a really big difference so at this point mm. if you are feeling any kind of way like that then please do reach out to these organizations if you've got friends and family around you you can talk to them fantastic if not samaritans can be contacted on 116123 Lighthouse Club can be contacted. I haven't got their number off the top of my head, unfortunately. So you can Google that one and the likes of Mind as well. Um, Susie, you've, you've given me personally loads of food for thought. 
uh, and loads of things to think about myself. So I'm sure it's the same for other people. So I'd like to thank you incredibly for your time this evening. Um, where can people find you if they want to find you, Susie? Um, the main places I've got an Instagram page, which is male underscore suicide underscore research. And um, we'll be sharing um, more of the findings of the work there. And um, Russ, I just want to say, I guess it's a great, I feel really, I don't know what the right word is to say, but really, I'm so moved to be able to do this work. And it, you know, it means a great deal to me. And I would say to anybody that is listening that's struggling out there, that your pain is your pain is what motivates me to try and, and motivates you and motivates many other people to try and um, make things different. And I, and I know for myself, when you're in that level of pain, it's absolutely brutal. Um, and I'm so sorry for that. But, you know, in terms we've talked, you know, a bit about isolation and that feeling of being, being alone and, um, and I think for a lot of men, their pain feels really invisible in the world. And I think collectively, bit by bit, there's a momentum building to try and put um, some focus on it and have it be seen and have it be understood better. So I guess I just want to express some solidarity to, to those people. And thank you, Russ, for letting me come on and talk a bit about the work and it you know it means a tremendous amount to me it's a real powerful thought to finish on Susie so once again thank you uh, to anybody that's listened to this episode today that's took value from it please like follow share subscribe if you know anybody that you've listened to this and you've thought you know what I can think of somebody that could do with hearing it then please send them in our direction uh, Susie, I'll, I'll tag your Instagram page in the description for the episode um, and hopefully people will reach out to you if they want any more information. So once again, thank you ever so much for your time tonight and uh, I hope that some of the things we've discussed tonight will serve as a, a benefit and some help to some people out there. Yeah, me too. All right, thank you. Take care. Thanks, Russ.